Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with James Hill, the CEO of MCF Energy. As a lifelong geologist, James has traveled the world in search of new energy assets. Along the way, he's built up an incredible network of professionals who he draws on as advisors. James takes us back to his early days in his career with stories of what it feels like to drill a winning hole that taps into a fortune of black gold. As well, he speaks to the difficulties when you drill a hole, a dry hole that is, and have to break the news to investors that it didn't hit. With MCF Energy, which is focused on natural gas and Eastern Europe, James is leading the company's exploration and development efforts, while his partners cover finance and the public market. Who are these partners? Ford Nicholson, the former chairman of Interoil, and one of Canada's most prolific resource financiers, Frank Justra. This is a great look into a fascinating career. And before we get started, please note that the information contained in this interview is not intended and shall not be understood or construed as financial advice. I'm not a financial advisor, and I make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained in this interview. I myself and all related parties disclaim any liability for information provided here and recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of accredited investment advisors. With that, enjoy the show. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corey. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. Your background in the energy industry, in well, all things resource and so on, I think is going to make for an interesting interview. And I think the best way we can start off is with a bit of a history and a background on yourself, and then we'll get into our conversation. So I'll pass it over to you. Sure. Absolutely. I've had a wonderful career. In fact, I wouldn't have changed anything. Really, it was back in 1970. <laughs> which was more than a few years ago, when my life really changed. And that was when I finally decided to make geology my career. You know, a lot of us do jobs, but, you know, they don't really enjoy them. And one of the things I have to say is that I've had a wonderful, wonderful experience. And really, if I had any more fun, I would probably have to pay them instead of them paying me. But in any case, I've had 45 years in the industry working on projects around the world I really started with the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, back in 1971. I had just taken my first geology class and was selling shoes at J.C. Penney's when an old guy came in and tried to discourage me from being a geologist. I got kind of mad at him, and I told him I was like geology, and I knew I was going to be good at it, at which point he handed me his business card, and his name was John Mayer, branch chief. Division of Oil and Gas, U.S. Geological Survey. To make a, a long story short, about a month later, I was working for him at the U.S. Geological Survey in a position that was really reserved for graduate students, but I was an undergraduate at the time. So I worked for the USGS for about six years. At the end of my career, I had my own project, my own Jeep, and a field assistant. And the project doubled as my master's thesis at uh, San Jose State University, where I graduated from. It was a truly, truly wonderful time where I got to interface with some of the most brilliant scientists in the world at that time. It was really amazing. Moved on to Chevron in 1977 and uh, spent 10 years exploring California and Alaska. And the really great thing about Chevron was the training programs that they had, the actual technical training, not just in geology, but geophysics, remote sensing, and geochemistry. Uh, There's an awful lot of exploration that related to geochemistry. That was a wonderful experience. I left Chevron in 1986 to form my own company, 
did that with two engineers and another geologist. And we primarily did consulting and I did prospect generation. Basically, I found areas that I thought had oil and gas and uh, we went out and sold the projects, raised money through investors and that sort of thing, and uh, drilled the wells, drilled some good ones, drilled some bad ones. All in all, it was a wonderful learning experience. We did a joint venture with one of our consulting partners at that time. And the nice thing about that was it gave us capital to not just drill wells, but to buy producing properties. And the really fun thing about producing properties is you get cash flow. (laughs) But that cash flow, of course, when you're selling oil for $7 a barrel is pretty restricted. So even though we had the properties they were producing, uh, we did a reverse merger with a Canadian venture exchange company called Tartan Energy in about 2000, year 2000. And that was really my first experience with public companies, and especially on the Canadian Venture Exchange. And I was exploration VP of that company, continued to drill wells. And really, really what happened was, was it gave us access to not just this one company, but companies around the world all of a sudden became available to us. We got to interact with them. We got to do farm outs with them. The big one that really hit for us was with a company called Nations Energy out of Kazakhstan. They drilled a couple of deep wells with us in California. And then uh, we did what what was uh, known as a shallow steam flood. There was a shallow oil and gas zone in this field in California that we had called Lost Hills. And did an extremely successful project there. In fact, it was so successful, it proved up about 186 million barrels of oil. Nations uh, was so happy with us, they just bought us. They tripled our share price. I said, thank you for playing, and they bought us. That was where I learned that banks not only have a withdrawal limit, but they have a deposit limit. (laughs) So you can only deposit a certain amount of money. So I had to go to the bank twice that day, which was, of course, not a bad day for me. Nations wanted us to stay and and continue to develop and, and run the field, but By that point, I had gotten to be pretty good friends with Ford Nicholson, who is one of the major drivers behind MCF Energy. And also, you know, his team of people, his team of investment bankers and that sort of thing. And they had a little project uh, in a company called Bankers Petroleum in Albania. Now, it turns out that the project was called Patos Morinza. And the Albanians... (laughs) We're pretty amazing at keeping secrets because who knew that the largest onshore oil field in Europe was in Albania? And that was the concession that we had. It was absolutely an amazing project, you know, taking it from front to back, you know, billions of barrels in place. We took the production from 600 barrels a day up to the exit of about 19,000 barrels a day when the company was finally sold to the Chinese. I had moved off onto another company by that point called BNK Petroleum. And bankers had tasked us with finding other assets in the U.S. And during that time, we made a discovery in Oklahoma called the Tishomingo Field, which is very, very active today, by the way. We made a shale gas discovery there that produced not just gas, but oil in significant quantities. We had a bit of a shareholder battle at that point. Our CEO at that time wanted to sell us off for about 50 million or sell off the asset for 50 million. And we thought it was worth more like a billion dollars. So what happened was, is they butterflied us off into a company called BNK. BNK, which is now Calibri, which is, you know, doing quite well, by the way, took the Oklahoma asset and started developing it. Now, we had to drill 16 wells in 18 months at about six million bucks a whack, which meant that every dollar I could beg, borrow, or steal went to drilling wells. So as exploration vice president, I either found a a place where I didn't need much money to explore or I had to fire myself. So, you know, at this point, I started looking around the world and realized that Europe was an absolutely great place. It didn't require a large capital expenditure at that point to to have concessions granted. You could tie up significant chunks of ground in Europe for not much money. And 500 million years ago, all these continents were stuck together. So the shale in the U.S. is similar to the shale in Europe. 
So we started our exploration program by gaining, oh, we had almost 5 million acres in Poland, Germany, and Spain. What time frame was this? What year? This was in about 2008 to about 2010. And BNK was one of the largest landholders in Europe at that point. We had a major program going on in Germany with looking at the shale basins there, drilled six wells in Poland, and finally did discover shale gas in significant quantities. And we could never get anything done in Spain, although Spain was favorite for me. The problem with Poland was is that they had, through various political uh, ramifications, changed their hydrocarbon law from a 1% royalty to a 40% royalty on shale gas. Well, of the 100 shale gas concessions that had been granted in Poland, Exxon left the next day, Uh, Marathon, Talisman, and a number of the other uh, medium-sized independents stampeded out within a week. We were drilling a well at the time, so we had to keep going on with that. And of course, that was the well that hit. We were basically about 10 years too soon in Poland is the way it worked. You know, in order to develop a shale gas asset, you need about a billion dollars. And we'd already thrown a hundred million at it and we needed a big partner to help us out. And because of Poland's change in the hydrocarbon law, we couldn't find anybody. So we had to walk away from it. It was a really, really painful time. It really, really was. You know, we were just 10 years too soon. If we did that today, things would be much different. Wow. So bring forward to now, I want to talk about MCF Energy and what you're doing there. And there's a number of reasons why I do want to talk about that. But to your point that timing and luck in a sense, I mean, how often have you seen deals where it's like you hit, but it's just a, you know, a bad luck kind of thing that the laws change within that point of something you had no control over. I mean, it's kind of a part of the game, I suppose. Case in point is Europe in general. You know, Europe has been drunk on cheap Russian gas. Well, not really cheap, but, you know, they kept it cheap enough to where they really, really stifled any exploration activities within the borders of of the European countries. Gas was readily available from Russia. Whenever anybody tried to do anything, Gazprom would send in their goons to sit in the uh, community meetings and heckle and yell at you and When we tried to do something in Bulgaria, we had heard that Gazprom hired 1,500 demonstrators to demonstrate in front of the capital against, you know, shale gas. Wow. The politic, the manipulation and the, you know, all of it just to protect the resource across the border kind of thing. Wow. Tell me more. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's face it. Gazprom did not want us finding shale gas anywhere, not just Poland. I mean, anywhere. So, I mean, they basically would incite, you know, environmentalists or the communities against us no matter where we went. However, it actually worked out very well because for us in Poland, because we would engage the communities ahead of time. You know, the idea is to involve the communities, involve the people that are your neighbors. We had local town hall meetings. We would be very, very transparent of everything we were doing. And that was really helpful. That was very, very helpful and allowed us to to get things done. And that's pretty much our plan moving forward with MCF is making sure that we're a good neighbor, you know, that we engage people and that, you know, we aren't here to hide anything. We're here to bring resources. We're here to lower your gas price. We're here to bring wealth to your community. Yeah. You know, it's such a such a powerful perspective. That reminds me of, of my conversation with Lucas Lundin, as we alluded to or spoke a bit about in our pre-call. But I remember Lucas saying that, you know, it was just such a commitment to, we don't own the rocks. We don't own the gold in the ground. We're there as contractors to extract that on behalf of the country and return that wealth and participate in that. You know, that perspective and that community relations aspect of of why you're there. And from what I'm hearing from you, it's got to start so early in the process. Yeah, it really does. In Albania, we painted the local school with Disney characters because the school was dull Russian gray. So we actually went in and painted the school with Disney characters. Poland, we bought new playground equipment for the schools, you know, interacting with the people to show them that we're, that we are there to be a benefit to their community. 
and like I say, to be a good neighbor, because when you find oil and gas, you're there for a long time. Yes, of course. Now, man, there's so many questions I have for you, and I'm regrettable we only have an hour here. Take me into MCF, and and as I understand, you've partnered up with Frank Schustra and Gordon Keep. Gordon, who was on, I think he was the second episode on the third episode on this podcast. Fascinating stories he has. I want to know how you came together to form MCF and how the geopolitical tensions are creating the opportunity you have now. But can you start with the partnerships that you have and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Ford Nicholson, who really kind of brought everybody together, you know, Frank and Gordon, they've been they've been involved together business wise for many, many, many years. I've known Ford for probably 20 years. And when the war in Ukraine happened and the energy crisis first started in Europe, Ford and Frank and Gordon recognized the fact that Europe was in trouble and it was only going to get worse. And that this was an opportunity not only to help the countries weather the storm, so to speak, but also to develop the assets in Europe that have really gone begging for decades. You know, Germany has been underexplored for over 40 years, 50 years. I mean, it's been a long, long time since anything has really been done of significance in Germany, not because the opportunities aren't there. It's just that, you know, energy supplies were so readily available that even when a good well was drilled, the price of gas or oil at the time didn't justify its development. So this was a time that not only prices were up, but the attitudes of the government and of the local people, you know, was really starting to change because they realized that you know, when you flip a switch on the wall, the light comes on and stays on, and it's not just magic, okay? There's other things that are involved in making that light come on and stay steady. And the same thing with heating your home or driving your car or powering your factories. You know, I mean, if the factories don't have energy to run, you're out of a job. So the impacts all across Europe were huge, And at this point, you know, and I have to hand it to the team, Frank and Gordon and Ford, for recognizing this. Ford has known me for, like I say, over 20 years. And he knew that I had been exploring with BNK, exploring Europe for, you know, over 10 years. And even after I left BNK, after their exploration program was stopped, I kept up my contacts in Europe. I have attended, you know, a lot of major conferences I know all of the players. I know an awful lot about the geology and where to look. So Ford came to me and said, hey, Frank and Gordon want to sit down and talk about a new venture. Having known these guys and knowing the project that they've done in the past, I was actually pretty excited because, you know, this was not going to be a fly-by-night venture. You know, these are real people, real assets, you know, that can support you know, a venture like this moving forward to create success. So, you know, I knew immediately that this was something that was real and could really happen. So they turned me loose. They engaged me as CEO of the company. We moved forward and within several weeks, we had over 20 projects to look at. I called up my contacts in Europe and wham, we had just a pile of projects to look at. And from those projects, we selected two uh, that I felt had high impact, could bring the most uh, bang for the buck, so to speak. That was Austria. And then, of course, I wanted something to balance it out, which was proven resources, proven reserves. And that was the project we selected in Germany. Both are large projects. Uh, both have a lot of a lot of significant upside. Those are the two. We engaged. I want to ask a question about how, in selecting those projects, how much consideration did you put to the capital markets and a strategy there of being able to communicate it and demonstrate value? What went through, or how are you being strategic about that? Well, you know, from my standpoint, I was tasked with finding good, solid technical projects that had a high degree of success that would be impactful to the company, that would be impactful to you know, shareholder value. And the reason why we selected 
exploration projects was that the buy-in was relatively small in comparison to the potential reserves. And then, of course, the other project in Germany had proven gas resources there. But because of the fact that the historical prices had been so low that, you know, it couldn't be economically developed at that time. Now it's extremely economic. So now as far as capital markets and that sort of thing, you know, that was basically the purview of Gordon and Frank and Ford. I was the technical guy who went in and recommended the projects, but I've had a crash course on the markets and how they work. So you'll have to be a little gentle with me on those kind of questions. I do reflect back on Gord's conversation with us. And one of the things he framed it up, he kind of had his ABCs of investing in gold projects, resource projects. And and one thing it came down to was if there isn't the gold in the ground, if the asset isn't there, it doesn't matter how good your management team is. It doesn't get, matter how good your capital structure is or if you can finance it. There's nothing there. And so what I'm hearing from you is, is the team is applying the same methodology of hiring somebody who knows the geology deeply and knows how to look at these projects being yourself and going in there and identifying 20 to two and saying, these are the two that make sense. And so that's where you are today. The really great thing about my experiences in Europe and, and my longevity there has been not just the fact that I know the companies and, and the geology, but I knew the people that were involved. And we brought together a team of advisors to us that quite frankly are just exceptional, just, you know, both in knowledge and experience and knowing the history of, of so much of what's gone on in Europe over the years has just been invaluable to us, has just been invaluable. Another thing that we bring to the table is my contacts through the American Association of Petroleum Geologists. I know uh, Deborah Sacri, who has been a developer in various seismic software interpretation packages. This is the remote sensing that we use to define, of course, where we drill our wells. You know, the big technological changes in the industry that have happened have been not just in remote sensing, where we shoot three-dimensional seismic, but also in how that data is interpreted. You know, a lot of times when you shoot a 3D survey, you get a very good picture of the geology under the ground. And you visually choose the locations to drill. Now, what Deborah has been involved in for a decade now has been in the development of various software packages that actually see information that you cannot see with your eye. Uh, instantaneous phase, you know, frequency spectrum changes, instantaneous amplitude, absolute amplitude. There's even one called sweetness. There's a, a nodal point, which is called sweetness, which of course relates to hydrocarbon saturation. And what Deborah does is she'll take a 3D data set, which of course has already been visually looked at, and go in and calibrate over almost 50 different nodes to a well that has hydrocarbons in it. And not just the well, but the exact zone that that well is producing from. And then she'll take the same zone in a dry hole nearby, calibrate to that, and, you know, do a subtraction on the nodes to determine exactly which nodes in this particular data set are indicative of not just oil and gas, but also porosity trends of, you know, the ability to flow fluids, the actual volumetric calculations that can be done, you know, off of the information is really amazing. And this is what we bring to the table, which has been so far not applied to an awful lot of the data sets which are in Europe. Not just are we seeing the visual things to drill, but we're seeing the things that you cannot visually see. The technology that's used now is interesting. I've got a question that I want to ask now, but we can come back to answer because then I want to take it up to a high level of what's happening on a geopolitical level. But the question that perhaps we can answer later is in and around the difference between the drilling programs and the exploration programs in North America where I think we're much more active than they are in Europe and what that means. So we can come back to that, but I want to 
understand your perspectives on what's happening geopolitically with Russia, Ukraine, and how that is causing the demand now. And why I ask is, I heard through a, somebody named Peter Zalen, he seems to be doing the rounds now about Russia and the potential for a million barrels of oil a day or something to come offline because the sanctions in Russia right now are causing an inability to maintain and upkeep the existing wells, the oil and gas wells. And he said that there's potential for those wells to freeze over and then to re-drill them. He said this happened in the 70s and it took something like 30 years to go and re-drill these wells to bring them back online. Now, is that true? And what are you seeing? Like, what are the potential implications from high, high geopolitical level that's happening right now? Well, let's face it. The war in Ukraine is the big, the big gorilla in the room here. And the fact that Russia is using energy as a weapon and, you know, that weapon is directed right at the heart of Europe. You know, there have been people in the past who have warned about this and have screamed saying, hey, 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 but, you know, when you're drunk on cheap energy, you don't pay much attention. As far as Russia having to shut in wells and whatnot, from the perspective, yes, they're going to have to do that because once, once you start to fill a pipeline and your compression facilities and that sort of thing, you don't have a place to put it then you've got to shut down the wells which are supplying it in the first place. You know, a lot of that comes from Sockland, you know, island up in the Arctic. God knows what will happen to those wells when they actually shut them in. The more critical thing is, is both Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines have major holes put in them. 100 meters of water, okay, that's 300 feet. Uh, that's deep. And the idea is, is just, you know, how easy and how long will it take to repair those lines once this conflict is over. From a geopolitical standpoint, I believe that the European governments, and, and we've seen this in their attitudes towards us, have finally come around to the idea that, you know, they quite frankly have not been smart in their energy mix. They relied themselves, you know, one major producer of energy, you know, one major supplier to them. And now, now they're hurting. The LNG from the U.S. and Qatar have kind of put a Band-Aid on that. And right now there's, there's enough to keep their storage at acceptable levels. But China is coming out of their COVID shutdown. And they have not been competing for those LNG cargos up to this point. Well, as soon as they come out, there's going to be major competition for those LNG cargos. And there's only so many ships out there, the price is going to go up, you know, to the Europeans. So from the standpoint of their government, they're finally realizing that the safest energy resources you can have are those resources within your own borders. Nobody can mess with you if it's within your own territorial borders. Germany is recognizing this. You know, Austria has recognized this. The Netherlands. All of the nations are suddenly realizing that, you know, you need energy resources within your own borders to balance out what you're receiving from unstable sources. And this is the change. As an example, the European Union has declared natural gas green now as a transition fuel, which is really critical because... You can look at windmills and you can look at solar panels. And, you know, if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, you're not getting any power. Germany now has 63 coal-fired power plants. China has over 1,100. From a carbon emission standpoint, it's really amazing to me that people scream about 63 plants, Germany versus 1,100 plants out in China. If we converted those 63 plants to natural gas, and they've done this in the U.S., your emissions profiles go way down. You know, your carbon emissions go way, way down. So this is why they declared natural gas green and a transition fuel, because it is so much cleaner than burning coal 
or even oil. It is really the the road to the future. Now, NCF supports the transition. Okay, we support the transition to renewables, but for the next twenty or thirty years, it's just not possible to switch over that quickly. So the need for gas and even oil is going to be significant, you know, well beyond 2030. We are here to bridge that gap. We are here to sensibly bridge that gap to the newer technologies. There's a lot here. I think that it's really interesting to note about how Europe has been drunk on cheap fuel and, you know, really of a single source provider and how that's come around to bite them in the ass. And, and, you know, you also see that with North America in relying on China as kind of a sole source for manufacturing or Gamera, the sole source of manufacturing and how that's coming around to bite us in the ass. And you did mention Nord Stream, and I think there's a lot of speculation around there. What happened? Do you have a, an opinion on that or a thought on that? As far as who blew it up, I don't have a clue. But remember who benefits the most. The major pipelines before Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 were built went through Ukraine. I wouldn't put it past the Ukrainians because the Ukrainians gained a tariff for every MCF of gas that went through their pipeline system. Also, the fact, you know, the Ukrainians would want to restrict the flow of energy into Europe just to show the effects of the lack of Russian gas would have on Europe. But, you know, outside of who blew it up, I don't know. It almost doesn't matter, to be honest with you, because, like I said, the governments of Europe are realizing the mistake that they made in having a sole source of energy feeding in to their countries. You know, the last time they shut down the gas flow through Ukraine, for instance, uh, Slovakia had to shut down factories. You know, Bulgaria, people, you know, went cold. It was a disaster, and luckily it didn't last very long. But, you know, the idea is, is that that didn't affect them enough to cause them to change. Now they're seeing the fallacy of their ways. Philosophically, when I look at, you know, I, sure, I'm a supporter of green energy and renewables. Who wouldn't be? But when we are developing our world, a society that is, is relying on dictator fuels and not having, you know, self-produced energy, and with an expectation that we can only use renewables, what happens when something like this goes sideways and factories are shut down and people can't eat and they don't have jobs? Crime goes through the roof. You know, all sorts of just a deterioration in society happens because we've lost touch with the energy that we need. So very interesting and interesting to see this play out. Now, if we were to switch gears, or actually let's come back to the question that I did have in exploration and development in Europe. I would imagine that in North America, we've got a pretty robust exploration and development industry for oil and gas. How is it in Europe? I can't picture oil rigs rolling down streets or, you know, different things like this, like you have in, in central Alberta and, and different areas. So as a Canadian or maybe through Texas. So what is it like there and what are the challenges you're facing? Well, the challenges, of course, are the fact that the permitting and environmental regulations in Europe are more stringent. They're not insurmountable, but they're more stringent. And you have to follow the rules. And the permitting process in the United States, you know, used to be here in California. I could submit a well permit, have it, you know, approved that afternoon and move a rig in the next day. Europe, it's not that way. Usually the permitting process takes about six months to go through the process. Uh, one of the things in Europe is that the local governments, the local communities have to be notified of your plans and they have to give their input and their feedback. We had to do this in Poland. I talked about the, the local community meetings that we had. A couple of those, I actually flew over from California all the way to Uska, which is a small town in Poland and gave a presentation through a translator to the local populace, you know, just to show them that, hey, you know, we are here. We want to listen to you. We want to address your concerns and uh, we want to be a good neighbor. And it worked, worked very well. We, we never had any protests at any of our well sites in Poland. I believe we fracture stimulated three wells there. Do you actually have plans or do you work to counter any of the, the potential propaganda against 
oil and gas exploration. As as we mentioned earlier on, Gazprom coming in and, and putting in places. Have you ever had to strategically counter that? Well, yeah. In Poland, we did. We were having a, a local community meeting and there were some hecklers in the back that tried to interrupt the presentation. And the helpful part was, was that one of the locals leaned over and said, I don't recognize you. Are you from this town? And the guy who was yelling had to admit, well, no, I'm not from this town. And the response was, well, then what are you doing here? And they threw them out. It was very, very gratifying. It's like I said, you know, we plan to engage the local people. You know, we aren't hiding anything. In Poland, uh, because we were fracture stimulating, we went around and sampled every water well around the well site before we drilled and made the information public on what was in their water. And after we drilled and fracture stimulated, we went around to the exact same wells, used the same chemical company to do the analysis and provided that to the community. You know, that's building trust. You have to convince people that you are not going to damage their environment. I want my grandchildren to breathe clean air and drink clean water. You know, this, you know, this is me. I want the same thing for you and your families. You know, once you demonstrate that to people, you know, they're a lot more willing to to cooperate and, and approve your programs. If we were to switch gears here throughout your career from the 70s and in geology and oil and gas development, let's talk about any failures you've had, which were most influential in your career. And I'm sure you've had a, a few, but there's got to be ones that really, you know, ended up being valuable to you. After I left Chevron and started my own company, I was feeling pretty confident because I'd had three discoveries with Chevron. And I thought, you know, I can do this. I can get out and I can do this. And of course, you know, when you're an independent, you just don't have the resources that you have working for a major oil company. You know, you have to pretty much bootstrap your way up, you know, into finding the data that you need and doing the analysis that you need, spending the money you need on remote sensing to properly analyze the structure before you drill. And, you know, because of those restrictions, you sometimes did things on a shoestring. And there were a couple of instances where I drilled some dry holes. And there were a couple of instances where I got lucky and drilled some good ones. And the good thing is, is that one good one pays for a whole lot of bad ones. So we were able to survive throughout the real hard times when, you know, let's face it, oil was seven, eight dollars a barrel. And my lifting cost was about eleven dollars a barrel. And can't make that up through volume. You know, you really can't. We survived on on drilling exploration plays and making the good ones. The gratification that I had from both successes and failures was that my geology was never very far off. You know, so I had a geologic success, but an economic failure, meaning I didn't make any money out of it. But on the other hand, the investors that were with us, it didn't matter whether it was success or failure. I called them. I called them from the well site with the results. And, you know, that transparency and that honesty meant that these investors usually went with us on the next project. Not all of them did, but an awful lot of them supported us in our next project, which, of course, meant that they still had confidence in me and my company. So that was very, very gratifying for me. Of course, I think it's amazing to me when you invest in a project and if it doesn't work out, how there's this almost shame or embarrassment from a management team and they fail to ever communicate with you again. And it's like, you know, people invested in you because they knew there was a degree of risk. So bloody hell, just communicate, right? Well, when we started, you know, an exploration projects, our hit rate was about one in 10. With the advent of 3D and, you know, being able to visually see the geology and the subsurface, it went up to, you know, 60%. That was failure rate. And with the advent of other technologies, it became closer to 50-50 and then eventually eventually 40% uh, failure rate. Deborah and her analysis, she's had an 80% success rate using the technologies that she has. And these are drilling in areas that we would not visually be able to see. You know, this is machine learning. This is, this is extraction 
of the data that we can't see with our eyes. So the improvement in technologies has really been significant, really been significant. And this is part of the reason why I think we are going to be successful is I've brought together a team of professional scientists that truly are cutting edge. And we're looking at the older data that people have already gone through and finding the pearls that other people just can't see. It's been an interesting road, you know, seeing the technological processes. I mean, when I first went to work at Chevron, there were 10 people working exploration in Northern California. The same job can be done now by one guy on a workstation, you know, as long as you've got access to the data, he can work up the entire area, you know, in quarter of the time. How has it been for you to start to embrace these new technologies and for you to understand them? You've had a, a long career here. And I mean, it's hard for anybody to break away from old habits and, and old ways. So how have you found yourself transitioning and using these newer technologies? You know, I've always had a saying that if you don't use all of the science, you're not doing your job. And as the new technologies have come along, they haven't been a threat to me. They've been an asset to me. Everything that has come along, every new technology, even the black box technologies, uh, we look at and we evaluate and we say, all right, you know, is this real? Number one, does it have a basis in science? What does it bring to me? What does it contribute to me in this project? And does it lower my risk? And you have to embrace these technologies. You know, anything that brings value to you and lowers your risk and increases your return to your investors is something that you must use. And there's no prejudice there. It either works or it doesn't. If it does work, we use it. If it doesn't work, we don't. There's no prejudice involved. I hear what you're saying. And that's one of the things I love about most science. I mean, if you can look and you can, you see something there and then you can verify it and look and say, okay, this is actually giving us information that is provable. And it lends into the model of what you're doing. Yeah, 100% use it. So I, I hear what you're saying there. Well, you have to realize something that the oil and gas industry uses more processing power than almost any other industry. I believe the ones who have more technical processing power than we do, probably the NSA. I mean, when I was at Chevron, I can remember going in and looking at the Cray, the ultimate in computer technology you know, that we used to process at that time, the 3D volumes that were just starting to come in. And we were all in awe of this thing, you know, looking at it. You know, of course, now the PCs that we have sitting in front of me now probably have more computing power. But, you know, at the time, that was cutting edge. You know, that was absolutely cutting edge. And it's like I say, you embrace these things, you know, when it brings you value and it increases your risk, you know, that's exactly what you want. Exactly what you want. Interesting. What are you most proud about in your career, for your professional career? You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a good question. When you think about it, I've enjoyed uh, my career more than most people could hope for. And I'm most proud, I think, of having always been fair and honest in our dealings with other companies and, and people. Finding and providing new energy resources to an energy-starved world, you know, and also bringing new wealth to communities that didn't have that wealth before greatly improves the life of people. You know, a little town in Oklahoma, you know, having taken leases with these people and found, you know, significant resources has provided them with royalties that has truly changed their lives. I mean, just amazing. You know, a, a guy has a hundred acre farm barely getting along and all of a sudden he's getting royalty checks to the tune of 10 to 12,000 a month. You know, that definitely changes their lives. Having contributed to, you know, finding energy resources, you know, creating wealth where there wasn't wealth before has really been in, been something I've been very proud of. There's something so kind of in a way almost nostalgic and, and even, I don't know if the word's romantic, but just kind of interesting about the oilman 
like the, you know, the oilman history, those who have gone out there, pursue energy and find the black gold and, you know, a lot of stories there. So I, I, I can hear what you're saying and, and how it's rewarding because it, it does, it can change people's lives. Well, if you've ever panned for gold, gone into a creek, like in California, up in the Sierra Nevadas, you've taken a shovel full of dirt and you've panned it down and you actually see first flakes of gold in the pan. It's a very similar feeling to when you find oil and gas, because this is something that has lied dormant in the earth for millions of years. And you were the first one to find it. You were the first one to see it. That drilling rig is there because it was your idea. You know, that is just like finding gold in a pan. You know, I mean, it's an extremely satisfying thing. What interest do you have, even if it's in the world of geology or outside, that you read about or watch things about or listen about? What really just intrigues you that you put your time into to learning more about? I've really been inspired more by the people I've come into contact with than books or podcasts or anything like that. The interest that it's built in me, besides having a terrible golf game, has been in what I've been able to learn from the people I've interacted with. For instance, the people behind the MCF team, you know, the financiers, the investment bankers, the difference in viewpoints of people. You know, the geology world and and exploration world is actually fairly small, and we have our own language, if you know what I mean, as far as how we describe things. But learning about other people and their careers and what their focuses are and their interests has really been uh, inspiring to me because you have to understand people in general. You know, if you're going to be successful in your interactions, especially with non-oil and gas people. You have to understand where they're coming from. You have to understand what their motivations are. And this has been something I've really tried to to incorporate into myself is understanding where the other people are coming from. I understand where you're going there and actually finding the interest and starting to learn more and hear more from people. I wish we could sit down with a scotch or something like that and just be able to dive into all the experiences. I tell you what, like the experience with Gordon got an hour of his time and I left about three and a half hours later. And he's like, you can't publish the rest of that because we got deep into some history. Yeah. It was really, it was very awesome. There's one thing about my industry is we all got stories. You know, when I was exploring in Alaska, you know, I had my own helicopter and, you know, we had four hours minimum flight time. And if you were doing your job right as a geologist, you rarely use two so at the end of the day, you had two hours of helicopter time that you could use to fly over some of the best salmon rivers in Alaska. And when you a pothole, it was so full of fish, you couldn't see the bottom, you'd land. And I've got absolutely incredible fishing stories. <laughs> I would imagine, man. That's really oh. cool. Oh, yeah. No, it was, it was an amazing time. We're actually recording now. Let's use this. I just tell me those stories because I'll give you an example of one of mine. I was running a tech company out of India. We're actually building it in India for Indians. And I would be over there on business. And, you know, one of the things we would do was days done, you go off to the bar, you're having, you know, drinks with your colleagues. And then everybody would leave the bar, run up to the tuk-tuks with a fistful of rupees. And we would race tuk-tuks, like, you know, by waving in front of the, the tuk-tuk drivers through the streets of Mumbai back to the hotel. It got ridiculous, but you know, those are the kind of fun things that come from a career. So you got to have some more stories, I would imagine. Oh God. Yes. No, it was, it was amazing. Besides the fishing stories, just some of the technical projects I was on, I was actually in Mongolia and uh, we were reviewing some projects there and I got involved a little bit of mineral exploration and there was technology that would induce magnetic field into the earth looking for ore bodies below the earth. They had a huge truck there to induce, you know, this huge magnetic pulse into the ground. I was there in a part of an investor conference. You know, there was a bunch of people from Macquarie and, you know, a bunch of the other houses that had sent people to, you know, not only see the mine, but also this new technology they were touting. And uh, they (laughs) very meticulously opened up the truck and, you know, they had a white box there 
And they lift it off the top of the white box. And here's all these blinking lights and that sort of thing. And I, I looked at it and it kind of reminded me of a sci-fi movie. And I said, well, okay, this is obviously not what they're doing. And so I went out of the truck while the explanation was still going on. And I noticed that in the back of a uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, there was a very nice young lady with a radio, headphones, and a laptop. And he was over, you know, directing the people with the sensors to the proper locations. And I looked at it and I suddenly realized that old physics experiment back in college where, you know, you have positive and negative reconstruction depending on the fields that you induce into the ground. What she was doing was she was actually recording the data on the laptop and directing people back and forth to the proper nodal points. So really what was being done was she was recording on the laptop, but of course the investors had to see this box with all these blinking lights, you know? So at this point I walked up to her and I said, aha, okay, I know what you're doing, you know? And she kind of sheepishly said, well, yes. And I said, okay, well, I understand the technology now. Thank you very much. But for the average, you know, investment advisor, you know, to look at a gal with a laptop isn't nearly as exciting as looking at a four foot square box with all kinds of blinking lights yeah. in it. Yeah, like some kind of cutting edge tech. Yeah, exactly. I didn't blame them, I guess, for wanting to pad the book, so to speak. But, you know, understanding the technology was really what I was after. When it came down to it, was that fraudulent or was it just, you know, they kind of try to put a little bit more sizzle on what they're doing. They were trying to put a lot of sizzle on what they were doing. Let's face it, you don't set up a science fiction display. And you know what? There could have been some aspects of all those blinking lights that actually had meaning. But, you know, what I understood was the gal with the laptop and saying, okay, I understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I agree that this is real. You know, this is a real technology. And that was all I was interested in, you know. But, you know, for the other guys that didn't understand science or physics, the blinking lights must have worked. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, anything else that you can come to mind? I love the I love the thing of having two extra hours a day on a helicopter. That would have been cool. Well, yeah, because it not only allowed you to have some amazing experiences fishing, but we actually had lunch at the base of a glacier at one time, and we were sitting down having lunch, and all of a sudden you heard a big crack in it, and a huge kind of explosion as a huge chunk of the glacier calved off went into the water. You know, we're kind of drinking our water and eating our sandwiches, enjoying that sort of thing. <laughs> it was funny because on that same day, we were hiking through the hills going up to an outcrop, you know, which is where the rocks are exposed. And uh, you're in fairly deep grass. I stepped into a hole and out jumps this furry brown animal. And it basically takes off. I, it was sleeping or something and I startled it. And it wasn't until it was about 20 yards away that I realized that it was a wolverine. And a wolverine could have torn my leg off. Yeah, those, I mean, they're vicious. I mean, I suddenly realized that, wow, okay, I really ducked a bullet on this one, you know, that I actually stepped on a wolverine. And, of course, you know, you have your, your run-ins with bears and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, I never really came close to those. Well, closer than about 50 yards, I guess, except for one time in the Arctic where they helicoptered us onto a, a chunk of ice in the northern Arctic Ocean. And, you know, we got pretty close to polar bears. And, of course, polar bears eat people. I wasn't pleased with that one, but the helicopter did scare it away. So that was... Yeah, wow. When I think about, uh, what is it, the kind of the talent crunch that the geology industry is facing. You know, you don't have a ton of young people flowing into it. But, I mean... What an incredible place to be. In fact, when I looked at the world of mining as an example, the resource industry, I always thought like, oh, how boring. Why would I ever go there? Until I started interviewing people in the industry. And I'm like, freaking fascinating. And so when I think about young talent, I would say, why wouldn't you go into the world of geology now? Why wouldn't you go into the world of, of mining or energy exploration? Because you know, I even think back to like, uh, I paid for my university by working on an oil rig. And that experience was was just, it changed my whole life and, and perspective on, you know, how certain people live their lives and what hard work is and being exposed to areas I never otherwise would have been. So yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, advice for young people to get into it. Different attitudes of people. I mean, really is amazing when you run into somebody from, you know, the deep, dark, you know, swamps of Louisiana. Yeah. Just their attitude and the way they speak is amazing. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you know, give you an example. One of the tool pushes that I worked with on the rig for the first two weeks, he only called me by four letter words. Like my name meant nothing to him until I proved myself on the rig. And then we became amazing friends. But I mean, he was a former alcoholic, chain smoking, Pepsi drinking oilman. Like he worked on a rig all his life. And and we lived such different lives. And funnily enough, the nickname he gave me was Wall Street after we'd worked for a number of months together. It was really an amazing experience. But well, we've gone on and on here. Uh, uh, this has been really interesting. Any final thoughts for the audience as we close off? The oil and gas industry has been my life for 45 years or so. I've been really proud of what I've accomplished and the impacts that I've made. The transition to renewable energies, you know, will happen, but you've got to have that bridge. You've got to have that bridge unless you want to move and live in a tree. You know, let's face it, energy has been with us for a hundred years, you know, uh, hydrocarbon industry. There are ways to mitigate emissions, you know, CO2 injection into old oil field reservoirs is a good place to store CO2. You know, the hydrocarbon industry is not as bad as some other industries like cement. Cement plants produce huge amounts of CO2. But the idea is, is that geology and the energy industry is moving to help mitigate these problems. We don't want to make them worse. You know, we're here to help. And, you know, we can use our science and technologies to help sequester CO2, to help sequester greenhouse gases. In some cases, it actually helps us in extraction of more hydrocarbons. Uh, the injection of CO2 into an oil reservoir will actually increase your oil production by 15, 20% when you're getting rid of the CO2. So it makes sense. You know, we're planning for today but looking to the future. And, you know, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, natural gas will be there for you. You know, natural gas will be there to power your plants. One of the projects we're looking at in Germany will produce significant amounts of nitrogen. Well, nitrogen is in the air. It's almost 80% of the air. But when you actually look at hydrogen, oh, hey, hi, look at that. When you actually Hydrogen, you know, because everybody's now touting the new hydrogen revolution, you cannot ship hydrogen gas via normal pipelines. The molecule is just too small. You're going to lose too much of it. So in our endeavors with the nitrogen that we're going to be producing as a byproduct of some of our methane extraction, we're looking at mixing the hydrogen with nitrogen to make ammonia. Well, ammonia is something you can easily transport. You know, you can transport that via pipeline. And then, of course, you can break it apart at your end user point. So in the industry, we are trying very, very hard to support the change to renewables, to actually be part of the solution, you know, not the problem. And this is something I just want people to know is that, like I said in the beginning, I want my grandchild to drink clean water and breathe clean air, just like everybody does. You know, I'm a grandpa, just just like a lot of people out there. And we're here to help. We aren't here to hurt anybody. And of course, we're here to make money. Okay. Making money is not a bad thing. It's like I said about the guys in Ardmore, Oklahoma. You know, their lives changed significantly when we drilled a well on their acreage and they all of a sudden started to get the royalties. You know, we're here to help. We're here to help communities and help people. And we want to be a good neighbor. We do. And that's our plan moving forward. Well, James, I really appreciate it. I'm glad we were able to connect. And thank you for your, you know, your stories, your experience, and, and your insights. Well, it's like you said, uh, you know, over a beer, I could probably talk for three or four more hours as far as stories go. But I appreciate your words and your candor, and I appreciate your questions. I do. If you've got more, let me know. We're transparent. Amazing. I'll put all your information in the show notes. And yeah, thanks so much, James. All right. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.